Uh, okay, welcome to the LSE and to the Forum for European Philosophy. Um, my name is Christina Musold. I'm the Deputy Director of the Forum and uh, a fellow here in the Philosophy Department as well. And uh, today is um, a discussion that's part of our Consilience event series. Now, maybe I should clarify because it has recently been brought to my attention um, that actually Wilson, who sort of coined the term uh, in the sort of scientific sense, wanted to subsume philosophy and the, the humanities under other sciences, in particular biology. Now, obviously, since we're the Forum for European Philosophy, that's not what we want to do. Rather, what we want to do is uh, we want to try and identify and explore the possibilities for the integration of knowledge from different fields of inquiry, uh, which of course always leaves open the possibilities that sometimes you just can't do that. So you might end up with incompatible views, which would be, philosophically speaking, an interesting result in itself. And um, I'm particularly curious how this will plan out today. So today's topic is Genesis, the Origins of Humanity. And the kind of questions that we envisaged we would be asking tonight are questions like, what does it mean to be human? What are the origins of humanity? And also, how do we distinguish ourselves from other animals? And the very fact that we're asking these questions is perhaps already uh, a human trait, if you want. And some philosophers might say that what makes a human a human or what distinguishes humans is the fact that we like to tell stories about ourselves, narratives about ourselves, in which we distinguish ourselves from other animals and sort of make ourselves look all special and so on. And we want to see if we can maybe challenge that view a little bit today. Um, and here with me to discuss these questions and with you are three very distinguished speakers uh, who it is my great pleasure to introduce. So there's uh, Ruth Mays, who is a professor of evolutionary anthropology at UCL and a fellow of the British Academy. And um, her research interests, among others, lie in the evolution of culture and language, the origins of kinship, family, and social systems, cooperation and competition within families and within wider groups, um, cultural transmission, and the establishment of social norms. And she has published many articles and books on these issues, and including, um, as I noted with interest, a recent article on the lack of acceptance of evolutionary approaches to human behavior, in which she discusses, and I don't know if she's going to pick up on that or not, but we might want to address it in the discussion. She discusses the uh, incom incompatibility of social science conceptions of humankind uh, and evolutionary theory. So precisely what I hinted at, um, when I, uh, at the start of my remarks that it might in fact not always be possible to actually integrate different views from different areas of research. Then uh, next to me is Catherine Rowett who is a professor of philosophy at the University of East Anglia and uh, she has a wide range of research interests including early Greek philosophy, late antiquity including early Christian thought, the history of modern philosophy and various issues in contemporary philosophy. Um, with regard to the early, early Christian thought, I don't know, obviously the title of this event is Genesis, so as I said at the beginning, we'd like to tell stories about ourselves. Genesis is one such story. Um, I don't know whether she, you know, she's going to talk about that as well and how that relates to the sort of more scientific views um, of the origins of humanity. But she's currently working on a book on, uh, about Plato on knowledge and truth and has also worked extensively on Aristotle's conceptions of the self, imagination, friendship, self-knowledge, and animal minds. 
And um, relating to the distinction between humans and animals, in 2007, she published a book entitled Dumb Beasts and Dead Philosophers, Humanity and the Humane in Ancient Philosophy and Literature. And she has also written about ancient vegetarianism, which I find interesting because I didn't know that actually existed. Um, and then to the left of me is Volker Sommer, a professor of evolutionary anthropology also at UCL. And his research interests center around the evolution of social and sexual behavior in primates, biodiversity cons conservation, rituals, and cognition. He's done extensive uh, field research in primatology and has published numerous articles, scientific as well as popular, and about two dozen books, including novels and poetry. Um, so, and he has argued, and I think uh, maybe we'll argue that today as well, that there is actually only a gradual distinction between humans and animals and that apes should be regarded as persons. And he's also an advocate of um, what is called evolutionary humanism. So maybe we will talk about that as well in the discussion. So now um, the way we will proceed is that each of the three speakers will give us some rather short introductory remarks outlining they, their broad views on these issues uh, and the things that they perhaps want to emphasize in this discussion. And then we'll have about a 30-minute discussion among the panel. And then we'll open the discussion up to questions and comments from you. And um, Volker, we'll start. So without further ado, I'll hand over to him and look forward to the discussion. Dear fellow primates, as a self-confessing ape and a scientist, I will happily tread where philosophers fear. And how that will go? Well, let's see. This is my thesis. We are human animals. But are we human animals? Maybe what some of you would rather want to hear. If you are one of these people, well, then better come and see a doctor, because you may be suffering from these three things, anthropodenial, which is denying that non-human animals may have human traits, transphobia, which is the horror to transcend boundaries, or humanism, which is not what I confess to be an evolutionary humanist. Humanism is just blatant anthropomorphism. And if you have all of this, you can be uh, excused from class, you wouldn't have dyslexia or attention deficit syndrome, you can just have human uniqueness obsession, which is uh, the latest and very fashionable to have. So I suggest you go for that. Um, three thoughts on the topic. Um, the first would be humanism is the new divinism. What do I mean with that? Well, of course, we like to distinguish between humans and animals. That makes sense to group our world into binary camps. Uh, we are binary thinkers, and perhaps this has to do with a history of in-group, out-group in human evolution, which likes us to want to think, uh, which makes us to like to want to think like that. And um, I call this the adaptive prejudice of dualism because it's very difficult to not think in that way and every morning wake up and having to think, okay, am I a man or a woman or a dog or <laughs> a human? That is very difficult. So, so we probably, uh, that's probably a default stage. doesn't really mean that that default stage of our brain is really how reality is, of course. 
Now, dualism in Western tradition, of course, heavily um, associated with um, Descartes, and his dualism uh, meant that only humans would have the supranatural parts of reality, whereas animals, including humans, when they are just matter uh, and just bodies, they would have to follow the laws of nature. So that supranatural um, is actually the divinism, uh, which is a hangover from the pre-enlightenment, if you want, and uh, that's God's playing field. Uh, so when evolutionary thinking came about, then, of course, that was heavily questioned uh, because humans and non-humans were thought then to share a common ancestor, and the whole dualism became rather outdated um, and really out. Uh, and instead, what developed is a rather crude monism. So everything is, you know, um, matter, and we should rather be materialists. That's actually how far I can get in philosophy. So I'm a monist, I'm a materialist, and the rest is really a bit too complicated for me. Um, so the irony is, of course, that I am happy to be a machine if I can still feel and so on, you know, as long as it's complicated enough and I can experience all the wonderful stuff, I really don't care. Um, and the only thing that really here happened is that the soul was taken out of Descartes' program. Um, so when the soul was taken out of um, the organisms, then of course this happened. We are binary thinkers and we don't like that. So we are then left with a monism which isn't really easily uh, integrated into our daily lives. And so humanism became the new divinism because it allows us to go on with a dualism, animals versus humans. Um, that's why Darwinian theory always has a but. Of course we are animals and of course evolution took place, but we are in so many ways unique. The Alleinstellungsmerkmale and the Sonderstellung in German philosophy, I mean, they sound much better. I mean, that one you will never crack down there. So here, all kind of fault lines of um, humanism, if you want, all these ones have been raised as unbridgeable divides between humans and other animals. And whenever somebody comes up with one of these uh, topics here, then you only have to wait until the clever ape is discovered who will just, you know, walk over the Rubicon. And uh, then you have to raise the bar and move on to the next one. So currently, joint attention is a big thing, you know, uh, in Tomasello's working group, for example. So I believe that all of these um, alleged fault lines are actually not in reality fault lines, but there are, is a gradualism in nature. So that would be my first thesis. We are binary thinkers, and because we are, we have just replaced the body-soul dualism with the animal-human divide. Now, that's my second take. Uh, there are no jumps in nature. And let us just assume, um, as Descartes did, that you can have half an arm or half a tooth, but you can't, can't have half a soul. That just doesn't really work. Because you can't have half a soul, uh, animals lack a soul, humans have a soul, but if you are 
believing that evolution happened, well, then you have a problem because you have to say that at one point uh, an archaic mother who didn't have a soul gave birth to a child that had a soul. And if you are doing theology, then you would now invoke wonderful um, uh, topics like that's a miracle or that's a mystery, how that happened. But scientists are not very far away from it because if we assume that humans are unique, which a lot of scientists, philosophers uh, do, uh, then of course we have the problem how did the uniqueness come about? Because the same problem is there. You know, there is a non-unique mother who suddenly have to give birth to a unique child. And then in evolutionary theory, we suddenly have all these terms, which I really dislike. Emergence, major transition, punctuated equilibrium, and so on. All coined by dead white males, as far as I can see, yes. Um, so these, uh, but you can, of course, now say, oh, you can be a bit unique. So evolution allows you to not be so all or nothing, but to be more or less. And so you wouldn't have to postulate events, it would be processes, how that really works, very complicated. But you could say, well, there aren't really um, you know, qu qualitative differences, they are always quantitative. And so to make my second point before I get to the last one, uh, nature doesn't make jumps, change is always qualitative. The last point would be rosehood is not real. Well, of course, here I really blunder probably, and um, Catherine will tell me off. So that's the idea that uh, philosophers like Plato had the idea that there's an essence in um, objects like a rose. There is redness. There is rosehood. If there is a horse, there is a horsehood in there. And in the realm of ideas, uh, the perfect horse will happily gallop and so on. So this kind of realism assumes that categories are real when in fact it is a form of idealism. And the uh, mind of God can be read when we understand uh, which categories exist. Now, instead of having that belief, you could be a nominalist like I am. You could say, well, of course, these are just all words which help us to classify things and we put them together and normally it works. But males and females, and then, well, sometimes you have to make a third category and what does that mean anyway? Transgendered roses and so on. It's complicated, but the message would be that if you want to talk about humanity, you would have the same problem, because that's just a category which we use to lump all kinds of things into it. Uh, same problem with chimpanzees, you know, there would be, well, a bunch of organisms whom we label chimpanzees, or for that matter, species. I don't even believe that it is um, more than a good pragmatic heuristic approach to classify living organisms into species. I don't think there are such things as species. Um, so that would be my uh, thesis here. Categories are subjective descriptors, not properties of reality. And I believe I have two more minutes, which I will use to enlighten you with a small video where you can see that chimpanzees have wonderful abilities too, and that they might be very unique in their uh, mind capacities. You may know this video. This is Ayumu, a four-old chimpanzee, who can just tip the numbers as they appear on the screen from one to nine. Uh, that's maybe 
good, but now I'll show you what Ayumu can do, and you can, of course, easily, you'll see that on YouTube, uh, what you can't do, and what other, no, what other chimpanzees can't do. That doesn't work, let me see, maybe I have to quit this first, and now my good one is lost, no, it's here. Ah, so, now, when these numbers appear on the screen, they will be replaced within 200 milliseconds by white bars. And now you have to still, still, I, oh, this could work. Let's see. My laptop is not recovering. Hmm. Well, what you would have seen is that Ayumu, okay, can do that. Just replace. Once again, for you a little bit slower, can you do it? Okay, you have to pay a lot of money to Japanese students to beat Ayumu. And it has taken a couple of years and they wouldn't do it for a grape. So, you can see it once more. That's the real tempo. So now, okay, just to tell you that there are many things which we didn't know other animals do and we day by day make new discoveries that they actually do fantastic stuff and with that I will just say, let me compose a take-home message, and that would be, reject the tyranny of the discontinuous mind, a phrase coined by His Holiness Richard Dawkins recently, uh, and be a proud humanimal. Thank you. Thank you very much. I think um, we'll just move right on. Okay. And then. Well, I don't have PowerPoint. Press laptop. Is that okay? I, I have to press PC. That's what I have to yeah. I'm quite happy to uh, accept Volker's conclusion about qualitative differences between ourselves and. Uh, other species, but there is a slight sort of scientific uh, problem that presents itself because one of the uh, methods that, uh, if we then want to say, okay, but you know, there may be qualitative differences, but we've taken some of these things onto uh, a different level than some of these other species. And so maybe if we're interested in what makes us human, maybe it's uh, pedantic to talk about unique traits, but something happened that brought together. Uh, well, Volker had a great long list of all sorts of things uh, up there, you know, be it language or theory of mind or, or cognitive ability for mem remembering uh, others or whatever it is. Uh, somehow there was some sort of perfect storm of traits that um, put all this together to make us absolutely past masters at um, what's known as cumulative social learning in the social learning literature, which basically is a way of saying that, that you know, there's nobody sitting in this room who knows how to build this building and how to generate the electricity that's turned on the lights and how to make these fake windows and all this kind of thing. Uh, none of us can actually do that, but it doesn't really matter because we can stand on the shoulders of those that went before us and those that have over millennia or whatever learned how to do those things, have taught their descendants how to do these things and we have learned and therefore, you know, this incredibly powerful um, ability to generate uh, culture and knowledge and all these things that uh, 
probably most lay people would say might make us human have um, come from this. Now, what may, if we wanted to put our finger on one thing that made us able to do that, whereas most of the apes that Volker was talking about are not doing any of those things and are still living in the forest, uh, quite content to live the same way perhaps that they lived five million years ago or whatever it was. Um, we also have a scientific problem in that there used to be, one of the things that makes us look especially exceptional is that there used to be lots of species, lots of other hominin and hominid species, and of course they're all now extinct. And uh, I mean, I'm not a paleoanthropologist, but uh, I think there's some sort of uh, various, uh, our closest relatives, I think we either ate them or uh, they died of the cold or something. I mean, there's a long range of uh, possibilities. I think that um, it's extremely likely that we were not friendly to them, even though we may have interbred with some of them. Uh, basically, I think we outcompeted them all around the world, which has left us with a very big gap between uh, the way we are now and what we see in any other species. And scientists like to use, especially evolutionary scientists, like to use the comparative method. They like to compare us with other related species to say, uh, what is it about you know, the social grouping that we live in that made language so useful if you're a human and less useful if you're a chimp, you know. But unfortunately, we don't have you know, six species of hominin that developed language and, and another 15 that didn't for us to make that comparison. So inevitably, this topic ends up uh, trying to, you know, it's very, it's very difficult when you've got n equals 1 to try and um, answer some of these questions. Um, there are a number of things listed. I just want to talk uh, about our social group because um, that was probably one of the things that I thought the other speakers wouldn't touch on, something that I work on, um, to do with the human life history. We do live in a more, well, Again, I would say it's a qualitative difference, but in it, there are things that humans uh, and hunter-gatherers do that are very not, not seen in other primates, but are quite unusual. So, for example, um, sharing of food and division of labor. Now, there might be uh, individual instances of sharing of food, and obviously there's breastfeeding in all mammals, but actually sharing of gathered food or hunted food um, is probably something that uh, humans do way, way more uh, than any other species. I think, I mean, Volker will correct me, I think occasionally maybe uh, some chimps might give hunted meat to a female. I'm not sure how often that's observed. But um, that might be extremely common in hunter-gatherers. In fact, women normally don't do much hunting for meat at all, and it's all brought back by males. We have provisioning. We think we have um, cooperative breeding. I'll just explain what that means in the sense that when you've got cooperative hunting and cooperative provisioning, and we also have human-female generations that don't seem to overlap. So if you think about it as... Uh, um, as, as Females reach age at first reproduction. It's about the time that their mother's reaching menopause. As mothers uh, reaching menopause, it's about the time that their mothers are dying. So there's, a, there's sort of um, circumstantial evidence, if you like, that it's a cooperative venture between uh, females, which has had an impact on our physiology in evolutionary terms. And Sarah Hurdy and others have made the point that if it's having an impact on our physiology, then it's also likely to have an effect on our 
you know, on the evolution of our uh, mental state as well, and that we are very social animals, we are very cooperative. And um, we also have a long lifespan, we have this, so we have this long childhood, which is much longer than in other species. We have this post-reproductive life, which is for females, which is longer than in other species. So these may all be contributory to a kind of environment where suddenly um, the potential for teaching is greatly enhanced and the benefits of uh, language you can imagine um, maybe if you want to go and help your daughter who's living in another group maybe the benefits of remembering who's who having relationships outside your immediate natal group it may be that there are aspects of our social system that just happen to have helped this perfect storm of traits get off the ground now of course I completely agree with Volker that you can't uh, um, argue that any of these traits are unique. So, for example, meerkats would probably be described as cooperative breeders, and they've also been shown to teach. So you can see meerkats bringing a scorpion to young meerkat and um, biting the sting off so that the young uh, meerkats can learn to kill the scorpion before it becomes uh, dangerous. But you'd be very unwise to argue that cooperative breeding generally, you know, generally uh, led to um, necessarily the need to have high cognitive capacity. And so, for example, obviously the social insects had to do all sorts of very elaborate cooperative uh, breeding without using any sort of uh, cognitive uh, uh, tricks that are the same ones that uh, humans use. So I think we have a problem in that, you know, we may not be unique, but we're the only one left in our immediate clade, zoologically, as it were, which makes us look pretty unique and makes it hard to pinpoint which of these many things. Uh, but I still argue that once you have cumulative social learning, I think it has <coughs> spun us into a realm that no other species has been able to do. And so operationally, at least, I would say that this feature that has generated uh, human culture in what, you know, and I don't want to get into the long debates that anthropologists and others have got into about what is a culture, but I don't think that's something um, that we see anywhere else. So in, in that sense, I'm um, prepared to acknowledge that that's something that's taken off and put us onto so much uh, different trajectory from other species, which is, you know, which is, you know, I mean, I don't really want to talk about uniqueness, but humanness, I think, is uh, somewhere in that story. So I shall stop there. Thank you. So I'm sure that um, Volker could probably immediately respond to that. If there's already a few things have come up that, that we might want to discuss. But I think um, before we do that, we'll just hear what Catherine has to say. Um, and whether or not what we've heard just now is or is not compatible with what philosophers have thought about these issues in particular, um, Greek, um, ancient Greek philosophers, is that going to be your main focus? Yes, yeah. I'm, going to, I'm going to talk a bit about ancient Greek philosophers and also about early Christian thought and the way uh, the early Christians read the Bible. Um, but perhaps before I begin on, on those uh, issues, I, I should just say um, that one thought I've had to, while uh, Volker and Ruth were, were speaking was that uh, it seems to me that um, just because the divisions are fuzzy or vague or um, gradual, it doesn't mean that they're not real. 
Um, uh, this is really uh, a point that uh, Volker made. I mean, uh, it's against a point that uh, Volker made. Um, and it doesn't mean that they're subjective, because if, if we use categories uh, that have been socially developed uh, through language over time, it doesn't follow that the categories don't map onto something in the world. Usually the reason why we develop uh, categories and classifications is because uh, we find that they are marking out things that it's useful to mark out. Um, so uh, they're not subjective and it doesn't follow that the classifications are not real. They don't have to be metaphysical to be real. Um, but going back to uh, what I'd already thought of saying before, um, uh, before we got here, um, my first thought is that consilience um, shouldn't mean that we forget the different areas of human life that can be investigated or suppose that the ones investigated by science are the only ones or the most important ones or that answers to questions given by science automatically get to the bottom of things more effectively. Um, and obviously my place here is partly to say that philosophers tread everywhere, there's nowhere we don't, uh, that we fear to go, um, and uh, in particular uh, the ancient philosophers already tre trod uh, these territories before, um, and uh, one of the questions will be, uh, did what they say um, get superseded at some point, or does it still tell us something? And it might be that there are deeper questions which are simply rendered superficial uh, by supposing that we've answered them in terms of evolutionary theory. Uh, now, it seems to me that science, like literature and religion and philosophy, tells stories and narratives to try to explain where we belong in the world and what we ought to aspire to. We like stories. We tell stories. It's one of the things that humans do around the fire and have always done. Um, we like stories that ring true and we're sometimes seduced into thinking that a story is telling us how things really are as opposed to just picturing a way of being in the world that we find attractive or seductive or inspiring or thrilling. We like stories that are inspiring and thrilling. We tell of the heroes from long ago. We keep telling of the heroes from long ago. It's how we aspire to be great ourselves. So when we lose our sense of something being a story that has depths to be explored and dangers to be avoided, and we start to take it to be plain absolutely true, then we're at risk of fundamentalism. The more intelligent way that our cultures have of dealing with stories is to tell them as myths and guidelines and clues and icons. And when I say icons, I mean icons are stories and pictures that uh, hint at something deeper and further and beyond. So the literal and superficial level that the story is told on is not the end of it. Uh, and the gathered group around the fire will understand what we're pointing at. <clears throat> so science is telling us stories about where we are in the world. Religion tells us stories about where we are in the world. Ancient philosophers told us stories about where we were in the world. All these stories uh, tell us things that might still be true. So going to early Greek philosophy, there's one understanding of the development of the uh, earliest philosophy that sees it as a kind of natural science, uh, an attempt to replace 
the myths of the gods uh, with something more naturalistic. So where they used to tell stories about uh, Uranus copulating with Earth and producing uh, this, that, and the other god, uh, they, the early philosophers thought, no, it's all made of water, or no, it's all done by condensation or heating and cooling. So basically they were looking for another set of causal explanations. So they told stories where the narrative was about causes like evaporation, heating, cooling, and the stories about the development of animals and plants was in terms of biochemistry and physics. But at the same time as they're starting to tell uh, a different story with different causal players, it's not actually more naturalistic, because after all, sex and procreation is also a biological model, right? It was just another natural biological model that they uh, used to tell before in the myths, and now we replace it with heating and cooling, which is more physics than biology. But they're all attempting to say where we came from and how the world was made in terms of causes that we recognize from nature. So it's only replacing one naturalistic explanation with another. So why do we try to exchange the one with gods for the one that doesn't have gods but has inanimate elements in it. Why do we exchange Zeus and Uranus for water and air? Is it because we don't want to be dependent upon someone bigger than us who can dictate things? Stories are not just attempts to say what's true, they're attempts to say where we stand in the world and who or what are the forces that we must fear and respect. Is it nature and its uh, irrational forces that, uh, that has the causal power over existence and life and death? Or do intelligent forces with feelings and purposes, other intelligent things besides ourselves and greater than ourselves, have power to make and break things? So each of the stories pictures us and the world we live in, and it either pictures us and the world we live in uh, as in the grip of natural forces that are beyond our control or in the grip of supernatural minds who intend that it should be perhaps lovely or in the grip of supernatural minds that intend that perhaps it should be terrible or not in the grip of anything but humanity supreme over nature and fully in control. And that last one, the picture of humanity as able to dominate and control everything, that seems to me to have been the favorite myth of the capitalist project and the post-enlightenment project to dominate nature and accumulate wealth and happiness. The one about being subject to natural forces is the one that's currently seducing us, or seducing many of us, in the guise of everything is due to evolutionary biology, so we only want what we want because we are programmed to seek more and more opportunities for sex. But these are all stories that try to situate us in ways that make sense to us. Their seduction is no different from the seduction of the myths that they pretend to replace. The myths of a society, I think you will agree, the myths that a society lives by are the ones that they believe are not myths. It's easy to think that other people's gods are false gods, but our own don't seem false to us. They're the ones that seem true to us. So that's about us now. Let's go back to the ancient Greeks again. There was Empedocles in the 5th century BC, 
who developed a causal account for, for the phenomena, especially for current biological species, by evolution and natural selection. The only thing that his theory lacked in comparison with our own uh, Darwinian theories of natural selection was uh, a, a precise explanation in terms of how the genetic uh, replication would occur and how the mutations might occur. But obviously something of the kind was implicit in the theory, else you wouldn't be able to develop uh, the idea that uh, things would have offspring like the ones that had come about. Now Aristotle was against that because he thought that it wasn't true to the uh, way in which a nature belongs to a particular kind of thing. So he's the one who has fixed species, it's not Plato, uh, but Aristotle who was uh, keen on the idea that there are fixed species in nature. So that was a theory uh, already around in the ancient world and it was a picture of where we stand in the universe. Along with that picture, Empedocles also had a picture of reincarnation. And this affects the relation between us and other animals. The idea of transmigration of souls, um, which adds a different dimension to uh, the relation of kinship between us and the other animals. I mean, when Volker talks about soul, he's talking about something different from the way the soul uh, is meant here. The soul here is who you are, what, what kind of person you are, your personality. And I don't think anybody would deny that we have those. At least I hope we have personalities. So it's not that we descended from the apes in Empedocles' picture. Uh, it's that we can easily become apes, and we once were apes, Individually, I mean, the very same person, you. And there's a great risk that you're going to go back there. So, this is a moral reminder. Civilized human life is only skin deep, and the soul inside needs to struggle to maintain its intellectual well-being. The message of evolution is that... Um, Progress will happen willy-nilly because nature inevitably leads to, to improvements. It's a dangerous message which is plainly false. And it misses which improvements are things we actually value. For example, massive success at reproduction is not our finest hour. To work out what we should actually try to be like when we intervene to prevent nature taking its natural uncaring course is a matter for the narratives and myths of culture, not the narratives and myths of neo-Darwinism. The main aims of human society are to prevent natural selection and the survival of the fittest. But what do we want instead? We need to believe in something to know what we're going to put in, in place of what would actually happen to us if we just let nature take its course. What about early Christianity then? Now, I think uh, it might be helpful to avoid thinking that the Christian message is uh, a kind of attempt to do, in rather inadequate ways, what science can now do much better. Partly because the point of science is to tell us a different story about where we are in the world. So if Christianity starts telling that story, then it's um, getting into a muddle. Um, there's a long tradition of reading scripture, which goes back to actually before Christianity, uh, which takes scripture to be allegorical. 
Um, this is particularly associated with the school of Alexandria, uh, and it originates in Philo, who was a Jew, uh, and uh, was um, into reading the Jewish scriptures in an allegorical way. Um, and um, the Christians take it up. So there's no real history or, or no serious history of reading the Bible, as it were, literally. Um, I was going to say before Dawkins, but I suppose um, perhaps it goes back to the Enlightenment uh, or the Reformation. Um, so the message of the Judeo-Christian traditions of reading scripture is that we're creatures who matter in an order that's uh, created for good reasons. And the mes message is really about salvation history. So the key features here are the difference between pre-lapsarian humanity before the fall and post-lapsarian humanity, humanity after the fall. So that's one big difference, which is not between animals and humans, but between, animals in their, uh, between humans in their perfect state uh, and humans in their imperfect state. Second is the idea of restoration of paradise through efforts that are not our own. And the third is the idea of the image of God in us, which can be lost at the fall and restored in the redemption that God provides through the incarnation. So we should notice how this is not about evolution, but it is a narrative about where we stand in virtue of who we are in the created order. But our value comes not from ourselves, but from the image of God in us. So it's not about the greatness of humanity. Uh, and the disfigurement comes not from God, but from humanity, from uh, our misuse of grace and freedom. So humanity is not privileged and exalted except in its original pure condition, but it is potentially good. So that's a message of aspiration. It's comparable to the message of aspiration in Empedocles, who speaks similarly, and many of the Greeks, of a golden age. And Empedocles thinks that the golden age will come round again if we let it. Uh, that means if we stop eating animals and do other good things. Um, I should mention um, the, um, the retreat to the desert, the, um, uh, the idea of avoiding the corruption of human life that is uh, sort of city-based and um, the invention of, of um, monasticism. Uh, that was one of the things I was going to mention. The other uh, thought is um, there's an anti-Gnostic polemic in the early church the resistance to the idea that the world is evil in itself and all that's material is evil, which is why it's important that, they, that the early Christians think of the body as a good thing and uh, uh, resurrected. It's not just the soul that is saved, it's the body and the world too. And the restoration of the Garden of Eden is supposed to be the whole world. Um, so, what provoked the temptation to find answers um, to the wrong questions in Scripture? Questions not about salvation history, but about something like uh, the um, material origins of the world. I don't know. I think it might be provoked by some kind of fear of the um, scientific, uh, which led the Christians to actually start to think that they had to combat that rather than say, actually, this is the story that we need to live by, uh, and yours is a completely different story, uh, which places us in the grip of irrational forces and is not um, 
It's just another picture. I think I'd better stop because I'm, I've been going on for long enough. <clears throat> Thanks very much. So I think um, there were a lot of points that came up in all of the three presentations that we can pick up on. Um, perhaps uh, one of the things that Catherine said um, in objection to, to you, Volker, that just because a distinction is gradual doesn't mean that it can't be real. So do you maybe want to respond to that criticism? Well, it could be that it's real, but just because, I mean, I believe what you said is that categories are often useful and they mark out things and so on and for that reason they may very well be adaptive and uh, be good tools to survive and that's the whole point uh, that evolutionary epistemology maintains that just because something is useful it may have nothing to do with how the world is apart from the social construction that it reflects so my idea that I am a self uh, you know is a construction of my brain and uh, if you put a rubber hand on the right-hand side of me and you tickle it, uh, then my feeling will be in that rubber hand, even though it's not my body. So that means that just because our brain is leading us uh, to perceive the world in a certain way doesn't mean that the world is like that. And, uh, of course, I am, have no quarrels with that science is a particular type of narrative. Uh, and Bruce would have big quarrel with that, I believe. So I've been too long in a social anthropology department and seems to have been infected there. So I, I somehow believe that, that science is also, uh, of course, prone to telling stories. It's just a, a much better story, somehow. <laughs> okay. So whether it's a better story or not, uh, I think it's, it's no. something no, we yeah, really right. want okay. to debate. How about this idea that it is a story? So Volker thought you might have an objection to that. Is that true? Um, well, uh, yes. I mean, I'm just trying to think how to put this. I mean, it, I think one of the things that I really disagreed with was not so much. Uh, well, I do disagree that it's a, it's a story because I think that um, I agree that there's some similarities because I think these early, I mean, all, all societies have a creation myth, really, as far as we know, all human societies. I mean, humans are very curious about where uh, we came from. So I think this is something humans have been thinking about going all the way back. And um, they didn't really have the tools to investigate it in exactly the same way that we would now. And I do think that the scientific method was um, something, you know, some way of, of Distinguishing between stories, I think, was, uh, you know, of late important in that. But what I did really disagree with was, was uh, I think your phrase, evolutionary, I wrote it down, evolutionary theory tells stories about what we ought to aspire to. I mean, there was, if throughout your um, discussion of the kind of story that it was, you were saying myths are things sort of invented by man to tell us how to behave, you know, bad things will befall individuals that do certain things or whatever. And I don't really see, um, I, I, you know, I think that's one of the great misunderstandings in the social sciences about evolution, that it's somehow telling us what we ought to be doing or what direction we ought to be going in or what we ought to be uh, aspiring to. I don't, I don't see that in any of it. So I think that was the basis of quite a lot of other things that you said that I disagreed with. Um, so I thought that was uh, worth saying. I mean, you know, if you want to say that it's a story, um, I, you know, I know, well, I mean, obviously I actually do, um, 
it's a story, but I think it's a story that's being advanced through um, a kind of shared understanding in the scientific method that is not how other stories were advanced. So I would see a qualitative difference there between a scientific story and a myth. Do you want to respond to that? I would like to respond to that because um, I didn't mean to say that any of these myths were made up in order to um, uh, give people aspirations or to present role models or to um, uh, frighten people with threats of punishment. Um, I don't mean that any of these stories were devised in order to achieve that. What I was saying was that our culture always uses its myths in order to decide what uh, is of value and important. That it uses these myths to picture where we are in the world and what the forces we have to fear are. Uh, and what the forces that we um, find, could, could master are. And so we, um, we always need some kind of uh, account of uh, what is and what is not something that uh, can control us and what is and what is not something that we can control. And necessarily once we've put ourselves into that position of seeing ourselves as controlling some things and unable to control other things and which things we can control and how we can control them, that's how we work out what our next move will be in order to achieve something. Uh, and what these, what these stories also do is picture uh, some things as great achievements and other things as not great achievements. So the stories that say, oh, humanity is unique because it's done, uh, it, it, it can do this, language or, or um, epistemology or um, uh, that sort of thing, or um, self-reflective um, criticism or morality, or anything that you say is a great achievement or something that makes us different or superior, I, I know that the, the evolutionists, I mean, Volker would not be wanting to say that these make us superior, but the, um, the, the, the quest for an understanding of who we are as a species, what we ought to be, and who's great, this requires stories, it requires myths, it requires role models. And if you take away the ones that we have at the moment, of the saints and the, uh, and the, and the great people who've done wonderful achievements, and say, we don't need any of that, we'll have science, which says that we're better because we can press buttons on the screen as well as the primates can. They're better than us. So we better try harder. We better put our children in front of screens and train them to press things because once they can get it as well as the primates, then and only then will be we have really beaten the primates at something that they that they're um, good at. But nobody's saying that. No, nobody's but, saying that. But what I'm saying is that the society needs its myths that do tell us what we ought to do. It mustn't reject the myths that tell us what to aspire to and what's great and replace them with monkeys. Okay, well, I'm well, yeah, I mean, you, you seem to be of the opinion that, of course, we need religion in order to be able to be good uh, or we need 
metaphysical. We have it. We okay, all fine. societies have such a, a myth. Well, that doesn't mean you know all societies. I mean, people kill each other. So uh, that doesn't yeah. mean that we should aspire to do the same. Uh, if we wanted to, then enter into the moral uh, realm, you know. And so, uh, of course, I mean, this, this is the big discussion, which of course is a discussion between secularism and. Uh, other, other belief systems which would rather not be secular. And so I, that, that is of course now a confession I make which is metaphysical in itself. So I have absolutely no quarrels believing that we can build fairly functional societies uh, where nobody believes in any god. Um, and, but do you, you and, do need a story. Well, yeah, but the story could well be a story which doesn't you know, invoke gods. It would be a story that invokes genes and a story that invokes that, monkeys. That was precisely, precisely my point, that it's, it's, not, it's not the god, the god word that All makes right. a thing a god. Yes, but I wouldn't think that we would need to do that in order to build a better society. I, I, mm. I think that, uh, you know, people for so many different reasons uh, will somehow, you know, try to go on with their lives and there will be a zillion of uh, compromises they have to um, uh, uh, do in order to survive and uh, so on. And the, these compromises may have absolutely nothing to do with metaphysical uh, concepts. You know, that it's just like I'm, I'm hungry and now, okay, let me rather uh, try to eat something. Or it's cold, let me put on a blanket. So I, I, I don't really need much more uh, to, to get through life. That's what I believe. It's very simple, actually. Because otherwise you would, and of course now I may contradict myself, uh, as, as an advanced chimpanzee, you would really also need very, very complicated myths in order to make your life. And I believe that the myths of chimpanzees are there, but that they are very simple. And I could be, you know, I, I try to be very simple. So I don't need these concepts. Yeah, and also I think you would have, I mean, just because, um, I, you know, I think that you're just trying to put too much into uh, this idea about this story taking over because I think scientists and evolution biologists and all sorts of other scientists uh, will quite enjoy to read a novel or go to the opera or whatever and enjoy that interpretation and try and take messages from whatever narrative is being told in that artistic form. It doesn't mean to say that just because you believe in evolution by natural selection you can't enjoy some other kind of cultural expression of some of these things that you're talking about. I mean, I would, I would dispute, you know, that, 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 that this is somehow trying to be an exclusive uh, narrative to the exclusion of all others. I, I think, uh, agree. Hmm. I think <laughs> it might be a good time uh, perhaps to open up the debate to questions because I can imagine that at this point there's <laughs> going to be quite a few questions that people want to ask. So um, let's start right there. Uh, I think there's microphones going around, so if you could wait until you have a microphone in hand before asking your question. Uh, thank you. Um, <clears throat> I, I'm certainly sympathetic to the idea of, this, of gradualism and our commonality with animals, but it seems to me that there are distinctions between humans and great apes even. I mean, language would seem the obvious one. And I had a question for Professor Mays. I mean, it seems to me that if we're going to talk about stories and about genesis and so on. I mean, the genesis story in science at the moment, one of the genesis stories in science is humanity's um, leaving Africa about 50,000 years ago, whatever it was, I mean, 60,000, whatever. 
And I mean, it seems that something might have happened at that point or not. I mean, you talked about various hominid lines, and we comp uh, competed them, but it does seem relatively recently. I mean, we have five million years between us and chimps, but only 50,000 or 100,000. When something happened to humanity um, and humans, and I wondered if you could speculate a bit about that. Uh, well, I, yes. I, I mean, I'm not a paleoanthropologist of that kind, but I'll, I will speculate about it. I mean, is, I think it's actually, um, it's even a little bit more puzzling than that because anatomically modern humans were around, you know, beings that looked like us were around um, for some time before there was this flourishing of, I mean, if, if you're talking about art and culture and, uh, you know, the, these kind of uh, this thing that really we don't see in the other animals, you know, that well, it started with cave painting and, and figurines and uh, which went on to weaponry and clothing and all these kind of things. And there's some evidence that these things only start to occur when the population density gets to a certain level. So humans existed for many tens of thousands of years in certain places at low population density and didn't appear to do these things. And then in places where um, we think they reached a certain population density, suddenly these things start to uh, spring up. So it's almost like, I mean, you know, and you know, this is why I was talking about this cumulative social learning. It's like you almost need a certain density of cultural parents, if you like, before these things can get off the ground. Otherwise, we're in the same position as the apes, just trying to work everything out from scratch and perhaps not getting very far. Um, but once you've got enough people who know how to do something that are all getting in contact with each other and all communicating with each other, then, um, you know, you put clever humans in that sort of population density. That seems to be... Um, when you know these cultural um, this sort of emergence of modern human behavior sort of seems to take off and, and you know i don't know what that I, you know I, that may just tell us that these are very you know these these particular forms are um, you know very difficult to sustain and and i mean one of the sort of, i mean again we're always relying on to some extent anecdotal evidence but one of the pieces of anecdotal evidence that supports this is, is for example, looking at the Tasmanians who uh, used to be very culturally diverse in terms of they could make boats, they could fish, they were wearing clothes, they had quite advanced technologies which were comparable to the hunter-gatherers on mainland uh, southern Australia and then they were separated and over uh, many hundreds of years their population was very low on this island and they just lost all this uh, cultural knowledge because there just quite simply weren't enough of them to maintain this knowledge so maybe the guy who knew how to make the fish hooks died and then nobody else figured it out you know <laughs> um, so there does seem to be um, uh, you know a density of humans does seem to be necessary for this to all take off. So there were modern humans that, ha that sort of had, if you like, the genetic or anatomical capacity to do it, but they couldn't do it until there were enough of them getting together in the right kind of environment. But it is, I, mean, I acknowledge that's speculative, but I would say that's now a quite a common view amongst uh, people who worry about such things. Yeah. Okay, shall we go right there? Hi, um, I'd agree that it's a, a spectrum from a worm to a person, but I'd say that we're quite a long way across and um, I think I read a few years ago that we shared 99% of our genes with chimpanzees and I think that's gone down to about 93% now. I was just wondering, 
can you enlighten me a bit more as to how many genes I do share with a banana? And is one of those genes something to do with the voice box to be able to talk like I'm talking now? Yeah, that's, there are many, many different ways how you can um, come up with percentages. It depends on the markers you use. And I mean, there are papers who talk about 99.6% uh, similarity between chimpanzees and humans, published in Nature, uh, if that is any sign of quality. So uh, that is 10 times the average dif difference between human males and human females, if you want to classify them like that. You can, of course, say, well, you are, you know, 30% banana, that's fine too. Uh, and you can be proud of your 30% if you want. Um, so really, I mean, there is, uh, there was the belief that genetics would be that silver bullet which would really tell us uh, uh, what makes our voice box or so, but it has turned out to be very, very complicated. And um, of course, now we can't really discuss genetics in, in depth, but uh, it, there are so many ways how you can come up with percentage points and if you measure, um, you know, if you lose 1,000, let's say, uh, base pairs, is this 1,000 uh, events or is this just one event where you lost the 1,000 and do you count it now as 1,000 events or just one event and that will give you very different percentage points, for example. So that depends again on how you like to look at things and you can say you and I, you know, we are, mm, what, more different than a duck and a banana, or we could perhaps agree that we are just ducks and bananas. Depends on, you know, what you like. <laughs> I think there's also, um, I mean, you know, again, none of us are geneticists, so we're just reporting others' stuff here. But I mean, I think the number of genes kind of defined as uh, something that sort of turns on some protein coding and turns it off at another recognizable point in your DNA uh, is actually not nearly as large a number as I think the geneticists thought they would find before they started the Human Genome Project. And, you know, we are quite similar, I think, to the number in fruit flies and other rather uh, unexciting uh, animals. But um, they do believe that, you know, the reason why these numbers are, you know, don't mean very much is that there's another whole layer of complexity in how you put the genes together and, you know, the, the sort of de developmental uh, rules that follow and that we are very good you know our species doesn't have that many more genes than some other species but we seem to be um, very good at you know I don't know what the technical term is but you know the, 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 the regulatory system the regulatory system exactly is uh, much more complex so and that's something that's not really being picked up by these percentage of similar code uh, numbers. So I think you've just got to be, you know, it's a bit like the old nature-nurture debate and all this kind of thing. You know, the numbers themselves can often uh, create, you know, confusion. Okay, I think there's a question there, and then we'll have a question there. We'll see. Yeah. Okay. Does consciousness and conscious comes into this picture at all? I mean, does that not make us unique of self-awareness? Uh, so the question was, where does does consciousness come into the picture at all? Picture and, and uh, yeah. does it is it not a unique thing? Yeah. Self-awareness. Well, uh, yeah, of course. I mean, it's a huge debate about consciousness and awareness and what that all means. Yeah, and I mean, how is it generated in the brain and all that? Um, so, if we assume that we humans are conscious, I would say uh, it is extremely unlikely, uh, through the argument of homology, that. 
um, apes, dogs, sheep are not also similarly conscious. Uh, but then again, it would be gradualistic. So at one point, probably, I mean, um, you know, an earthworm or a cockroach, uh, what is it like to be a bat? Uh, you know, at, at a certain point, it will be so dissimilar uh, that we couldn't uh, describe it in our own uh, ways of how we feel like, how we are conscious. But if your question is, if consciousness uh, is a topic for evolutionary biologists, yes, it's a very hot topic. And nobody denies that it exists. Pardon? No, I was just pointing out that consciousness, which is, if you want, the ability to feel something in your head, to put it very simple, uh, you know, to have a subjective experience, wouldn't that be consciousness? So why would a sheep not have that? So I believe they definitely have also consciousness. While we could debate that they don't, but I believe it makes no sense to assume that. Yeah, I think maybe what you might have in mind is the distinction between consciousness and, and self-consciousness, which is not often distinguished and I think should be distinguished. So it's one, one thing, I think, to say that a being is conscious in the sense of being sentient, being able to feel pain, pleasure, etc. It's maybe another thing to say that that being is self-conscious in the sense of being able to ask precisely the questions that we're asking right now, right? Reflecting on ourselves and, and where we stand in nature. And that might again be a difference of degrees. I'm not saying it's necessarily different in kind, but I think that might be what is perhaps driving your question when you say that's unique to humans. Um, okay, let's take that question there. Once uh, biological evolution uh, took place and Homo sapiens formed, uh, wh and while biological functions uh, uh, remained common, a lot of biological functions remain common, one quality uh, the, to speak and then read and write uh, began uh, to um, create more and more differences between um, man and animals um, and man may have had may have some humanity humanity in inverted commas uh, we have uh, inhumanity also utter inhumanity um, uh, we thought that after the Second World War, we had formed social sciences, have been evolving a lot, and man has been oh, moving away from the basic biological function of uh, struggling for his existence or beating the, um, the other. Uh, inhumanity after Second World War, though we formed the UN Charter and then uh, evolution of social sciences, inhumanity has been um, um, uh, oppressing a lot of people, especially after in the second half of the 20th century when the third world countries began to be free from external colonialism. 
there in the, the ethnic minorities in some of those countries began to be oppressed internally internal colonialism began to uh, increase higher and higher and uh, that one best example good example is sri lanka where um, for the last 64 years after independence the ethnic minorities have been severely oppressed and uh, uh, they are in a very bad situation now. Even the UN and the Commonwealth uh, become organization. Okay, sorry, become sorry, sorry. organizations. Become organizations for members with inhumanity and oppress the uh, oppress people more and more. Okay, thank you very much. I think the, the gist of the question is clear. So, if we talk about humanity, you know, do we also have to say something about inhumanity as being the other coin of that? And is that perhaps something that's also unique? to humans. Um, I'll leave that to you to take that up. Uh, I think I'd just like to respond to that by think, uh, saying that I think that humanity is being used in, in two slightly different senses here. One is to mark out a certain species. Um, but with, within that species, of course, um, morally we make judgments about uh, some things being humane and, uh, and other things being inhumane and, and humanity and inhumanity are used as terms of um, uh, praise and condemnation and that's because we have a certain sense that uh, the human species has the capacity to be good and noble and kind uh, and to look after other members of its own species and we regard that as being uh, a, a praiseworthy thing to do and therefore we use the word inhumanity uh, to refer to members who don't live up to that um, and, and I think that um, belongs to the kind of area that I was talking about uh, about the myths that drive us to achieve great things and uh, to be good uh, people um, and they have nothing to do with the uh, stuff about evolution. Okay. Um, does anybody else want to pick up on that or should we move on? Okay, so I think we'll move on to the next question there. Thank you. I think uh, there's no question that science is a myth. If you look at science, you know, 40 years ago, it is clearly a myth. And, and one of the things that's different about scientific myths is that science destroys itself from one day to the next. If you look at Dawkins, for example, in 1976, saying, we are born selfish. 2006, Dawkins, oh no, sorry, I got that wrong. We're altruistic. And furthermore, even E.O. Wilson, you know, another dyed-in-the-wool born selfish enthusiast has suddenly recanted. This is a big shift. Now, it's true, it does happen in, in religion as well. You know, you had Christ, you had the New Testament, you had Luther and so on. But I think science is qualitatively different in that it does um, set out deliberately to destroy old science. Uh, well, I mean, I think you're misunderstanding the uh, title of Richard Dawkins' book, The Selfish Gene. He wasn't uh, talking about um, people being selfishness. It was, it was a metaphor. I mean, he was saying that it's useful to look at the gene as the unit 
of selection. That was what that book was about. And um, it did have something about altruism in it. And it's true that you know uh, uh, there's a lot more work being done on altruism and how altruism evolves since uh, that you know whatever it is, 35 years or 25 years since that book. Um, was written, but you're also absolutely right that I mean that is why that is I think why scientific myths are different from these other myths and why I don't call them myths is that um, you know there is inherent in what scientists are trying to do is that they're trying to falsify um, story, you know the, the, the current knowledge and it, and it is through that process that the uh, you know that there is, pro you know that there is this replacing of ideas. I mean, that is that is what scientists are trying to do, and with the hope that each time they do it, they're seeking evidence against something. Is one of the ways that you know the theory changes. I mean, that, you know, scientists are not afraid of change. They're they're trying to change. Um, the way we see the world, because you know that—that's what—that's kind of uh, pretty much what the whole game is about. Okay. Um, yeah. You, yeah, you get it, Mike. Um, this is for Catherine, because again, this is your sort of primary sort of area of research. It seems is that you think we need these like fancy stories to explain concepts or, or to give us some sort of direction or drive in life. But thing, the reason why we cooperate is because natural selection has favoured that cooperation. We increase our, our evolutionary fitness, as it were, for mutual benefit. It's why we socially ostracise and punish non-cooperators or, or defectors. Because, I mean, it's the way in which we maintain these social payoffs that we, we, we derive from a cooperative strategy. So you, you, I don't think you can... I mean, that's not to say that I'm a genetic determinist. I mean, I'd rather say I'm an advocate of, of nature-nurture interactionism. But I don't think you can say that just taking the evolutionary point of view, you can't explain all these concepts of, that we see, that we cooperate and we give to each other. We don't need these, these fancy stories to, to explain those. You can explain those from, from an evolutionary point of view. Um, yes, I'd like to respond to, uh, to that because it um, raises again the claim that I said that we need the stories. Um, I, I want to reiterate, I'm not saying that we need the stories for some kind of... Um, uh, I'm not quite sure what you thought we need them for. What I'm saying is that human society lives by its stories. All human societies live by their stories. Uh, and th they understand their position in the world and which things they, sh they can and can't achieve uh, in virtue of the stories of, of where they belong in the world and who's achieved what in the past uh, and uh, so, so it's not that we need the stories, it's that we have the stories. And you've just given me one of the stories that gives a, gives a causal account of why we cooperate. And there are other stories about why we cooperate. And there are some stories that inspire us to cooperate and some stories that inspire us not to cooperate. So, for example, um, Keynesian economics inspires us to compete but the ancient world lived by a more um, collaborative and uh, cooperative ideal. So whether you have a cooperative ideal or a, or, or a competitive ideal in your society, it depends upon the myth that the society lives by and as to whether you get on best and achieve uh, a success in life 
by collaboration and cooperation or by competition uh, and getting better, the better of other people. And you can see that we can change the way a society thinks by changing the myths it lives by. Of course, manipulating the myths is what the politicians try to do, but, and we don't necessarily want to be manipulated, so we need to find ways of telling the stories that we want uh, to hear, and we need to tell them to our children. But we need that not because uh, we want to somehow uh, get something that is given that's good. We've got to picture what's good. And uh, it's not that we need it, we have it. We have it, it's through and through all society that we get some, and, the, and the, uh, I mean, I wasn't saying that the um, evolutionary story is trying to replace the myths. What I'm saying is that it risks replacing the myths with something else that people will then take to be an account of what they ought to do. And the danger is that when people take the evolutionary story as an account of what they ought to do and how to aspire to be great, well, what do you get? Maybe you get something like, well, survival of the fittest means that we should only preserve the, the best of the, uh, of the members of the society. We should have genetic selection. We, uh, we should do something like that. Or you may get people interpreting it as a myth that means uh, that, um, that cooperation and altruism is inbuilt so you don't need to teach it. There are loads of different things that can happen if you take that as a myth that gives you the values of the society. Yeah, of course, I was just going to say you can, of course, what you do with that story will depend... I mean, you, you can interpret that in different ways, right? I took Volker to be saying, well, if we take seriously the evolutionary story, maybe it makes us more humble in that we see that we're more like other animals and that we perhaps should treat this animal, these animals with more respect than we would otherwise do. So it doesn't necessarily have to but it lead to these negative consequences. Does no, it? but it doesn't necessarily lead to humility. No, yeah, but, but that's the same problem like with the Bible. I mean, from the Bible, you know, you can construe anything. You can, like, I mean, burn people at the stake and, uh, you know, think that is good because you prevent them from committing more sins so they will perhaps just be in purgatory instead of in hell. And you can say, okay, let's do liberation theology in, in South America. Uh, so science, of course, uh, is not in a political vacuum, but tries to first say, well, of course, I'm not trying to uh, inject uh, any values into what I'm doing. Of course, that doesn't really work like that because people will pick whatever they like to pick. Uh, but that has nothing to do really with, let me say, the factual, if there is such a thing, basis of scientific discoveries. I mean, there is probably, probably evolution really happened, yeah? So, uh, and I mean, whatever story you now want to tell from, from that, uh, is another question, and there is no way out. We will always then use it and whatever. We can now use the word eugenics yeah, in Germany. I mean, it will land you in jail. Yeah? But here in Britain, we still have a eugenic society. So, <laughs> you know, whatever, however it goes, uh, we will uh, be political animals who, who will then uh, do something with it. But scientific discoveries in itself hmm, is, is difficult. I don't think they happen in a, in, in a, in a, in a political vacuum. They don't. But uh, they are not necessarily um, hmm, responsible for how then somebody will use them as an argument. 
That is what I would say. And one could say exactly the same about the Bible, that it's, yeah, not, yeah, yeah. it's not responsible for the ways that people yeah. abuse it. So there is no way out of it because no of it. We, 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 uh, we need social identity and we will take it from anywhere we get it. Okay, well, there seems one, one point of agreement anyway. Um, let's take a question from, from that side. Um, we have so many more questions, so I, unfortunately I have to move on. Um, would the panel like to comment on, um, say, the evolutionary imperative as we're going forward? What are the aspects of our humanity that um, are, if any, are evolving? And do we have any agency in that? Um, is there anything that uh, you can comment about that? Well, uh, one, one, one could just be f uh, fatalistic, you know, evolution uh, happens, so the chimpanzees will die out, uh, and organisms whom we call humans will also ultimately die out. Uh, if there is really an agency in it, well, it will just last for, what, 100,000 years or 1.5 million years, what does that matter? Because, you know, we count in billions uh, in terms of the universe. Now, of course, I suffer if the chimpanzees die out because I like them so much and I like butterflies and so I would like to preserve the status quo, which in itself is a paradox because evolution is about change. So my agency may totally mislead me also in, in what is good to do. Yeah? So I... No, I wouldn't have. No, I think it will go on for a long time. All right, well, yeah, I mean, surely technology and social networking and such things, you know, uh, are again a new, if you want, advanced uh, layer. Well, that is evolution. <laughs> that is what I would say. I mean, that, that is, you know, and any change is always evolution. And it's just externalized from our bodies. So we are already evolved in that sense if we use a Blackberry phone. That's how I would see it. Okay, are there other comments on that? If not, then um, yeah, we'll take that question. Uh, Professor Sommer, uh, you've uh, said to a gentleman in the audience sitting in front of me that he was 30% banana. Um, perhaps you'd like to uh, say a few words about expanding your boundaries uh, from human to animal, uh, whether it's worthwhile even expanding boundaries further than animal and saying that we are all part of one biological order. Uh, the question I'm trying to pose to you is if uh, certain behaviors and certain collections of behaviors don't make us uniquely human, are there certain traits that make us uniquely animals? Well, yeah, that of course, this is a question maybe about the, the enlargement of the community of equals or so, you know, the, the concept whether we should overcome racism and sexism and nationalism and speciesism and in the end maybe bananaism or something like that. Uh, so I, I think uh, that, that that is a deeply anthropocentric concept again, which I'm fallible of because I can't 
help myself, you know. I mean, I have to think somehow. And now maybe I would say that uh, it is for me a good thought to think that there should be all kind of different organisms on this planet and I would strive to somehow preserve them and that's why I spend so much energy in nature conservation, wildlife conservation, things like that. Um, I don't think that is necessarily unique in the sense, you know, I could now come up with things, whatever the termites, I mean being very kind to the trees which grow out of their mounds because in these trees uh, there are certain resources which uh, allow them to survive better and so on, you know, maybe that is also caring by the termites, I don't know. Um, so I wouldn't see any unique uh, capacity in that, no. Except perhaps that we could say, oh yeah, I mean only we humans know that we are talking about it, yeah, because I can't talk to others. Uh, that, that may be, you know, uh, what we believe, that we are the only ones talking about uh, us being unique. All right. Um, I would just like to say something very, very quickly. Um, I'm a researcher and I'm um, working sort of through different disciplines and two things I'm interested in is evolutionary biology and semiotics. Now one of the main things that we're sort of researching at the moment is sort of what uh, is some kind of continuity between human beings and you know, animals and other types of organisms. And um, semiotics will teach us there's actually us as human beings and um, animals share something um, which is very important, which is the capacity to make and understand signs. To give you a very, very short example, if you think of um, you know, a, um, a cell, um, and the cell would make some kind of, mean, well, we'll say meaningful, but then obviously that has to be taken into brackets. But we'll make a meaningful decision within how um, to choose between different proteins and which one they will have to use in order to survive. The fact is that kind of what they interpret is a signal or a sign, which is information. So the fact that we sort of um, interpret information and signs, so what happens in, you know, on the level of cells, it's something that is a species-specific, um, well, I know you don't like the term species, but sort of the species-specific um, ability. The fact that we are able to interpret signs, the fact that we are able to interpret information, this is something that we share with, uh, you know, with all the animals. And in biosemiotics, um, well, this is not just a theory, but it's actually been um, research have done by many different biologists and philosophers as well, so it's kind of a growing discipline. But it's kind of, um, it brings us back to the question about uniqueness, about humans, um, human beings and animals. And I think the difference, if I'm thinking about us being a semiotic animals, is kind of is our capacity of, um, you know, using symbols and myth in order to be able to kind of make a distinction and make um, um, or use it to, to understand the world we live in, whereas possibly you know, other um, animals would not be able to sort of think consciously about themselves, but to kind of make and interpret signals that are around them and their environment in order to um, survive. And um, I was wondering whether you sort of came across this. 
Yes, I, I was wondering whether you ever came across um, these theories, really, and what do you think in terms of um, a semiotic ability of um, animals, of being able to understand and process information and then kind of behave according to the environment? Yeah, surely, I mean, if you believe that information exists, uh, then all organisms process information. Uh, uh, you know, they have to. <laughs> so, That's actually one of the definitions, I think, of yeah. an organism. <laughs> but, but I think, if, Ruth, you, you were saying that humans perhaps are, are well, special, if we want to use that term, in the sense that um, we transmit information perhaps in, in slightly more elaborated ways, right? We can teach each other, you said. And, yeah, there's well, sort of forms I mean, of cultural I mean, transmissions of information that well, Yeah, I mean, I think it, I, I just think we've taken it to such a level. I was talking about the fact that we can, you know, it, it's ratcheted up because we can cumulatively benefit from so much performance. Yeah, but then it really depends on the definition of what is complex and so on, you know, and mm -hmm. it harps mm -hmm. back to all that stuff that, I mean, evolution is about increasing complexity when there are ever so many uh, re reconstructions of what happened in evolution where you see that things have been reduced, you know, the skin of... Uh, certain animals which we call reptiles were once far more complex and now they are much simpler and human skin is much simpler and is human communication really so much more elaborate than what the whales do and what uh, the birds do and so on. I mean that really is a matter of you know your personal liking uh, and uh, th that's... Yeah, I don't mind that but I, mean, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think maybe we just disagree but I mean it's... yeah. Can I also say something that, uh, I, I mean, I think it might be helpful to distinguish between uh, the kind of interpretation of signs uh, that belongs to things that are kind of intentional, where, where there's something that it's about, and to understand it is to uh, be able to think of what the thing is referring to or is about. And that seems to me to be very different from uh, responding to code or uh, replicating code, or um, doing things in response to encoded information, which seems to me to be something that one can replicate in machines. But the actual um, envisaging of the thing that you're trying to talk about is something that's rather more complicated and, and, and not, not what you're talking about in animals. That's right. And people call that information, but it's not information of the same kind. Yeah. And if you think of the, of the instructions that you give to dogs or horses, which apparently they kind of understand, it's not the same as, as uh, telling somebody a story. Yeah, and it's also not the same as what a, the code that a cell responds to. Okay, so with that, we have still many more questions left open, as it should be, I think, after a good discussion, because we can all go home and think further about these things. But unfortunately, we run out of time for continuing the discussion here, so please join me in thanking our speakers for the stimulating discussion.